Greetings, brothers and sisters. Uh, this is week four of our Summer in the Psalms series, and last week we looked at Psalm 110, where we focused on the royal priest, uh, Jesus as king, Jesus as priest. Uh, and today we're going to look at Psalm 111. And Psalm 111 is a praise psalm, uh, giving God praise for his great works. And so we want to see what exactly does that look like and how can that shape the way that we praise God uh, today. So let's pray and then we will dig into Psalm 111. Father, thank you for your great work of redemption on our behalf. Thank you for giving us the gift of your son. Thank you for saving us from a plight that we could never save ourselves from. Thank you, Father. We give you thanks for all that you've done. Help us as we open this psalm up to uh, grow in our understanding of what it means to praise you, uh, to give you the kind of praise that you call for. We could never give you the kind of praise that you deserve. Uh, we could never say enough about the good things that you have done for us. Uh, but help us to say more. Help us to praise more consistently and more heartfeltly, wholeheartedly. So give us grace as we open this psalm together, Father. Thank you for your word and the power that it has to change us. Thank you for the great work you've done in history, accomplishing our salvation. And we pray that we would live out of it by faith in you. Help us to trust you for the future. Help us to trust you for our day, even today. And help us to indeed give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, we're going to consider alphabets and mirrors. Alphabets and mirrors. Psalms 111 through 119 form a unit. Psalms 111 and 112 uh, together introduce this unit. And the massive Psalm 119 concludes the unit. In between, you have Psalms uh, 113 through 118, which are traditionally sung together by Jews during Passover. One writer even called them the Exodus Cantata. If you want to know what hymns Jesus and his disciples sung after they ate the Last Supper together, it was most likely Psalms 113 through 118, or a portion thereof. In Psalms 111 and 112, the opening, and Psalm 119, the closing of this unit, there's a focus on Torah, on the instruction of Yahweh, which points back to the instruction Yahweh gave his people at Mount Sinai following the exodus from Egypt. So to quote Run Ryder, Passover celebrates the miraculous actions of God in delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The giving of the Torah at Sinai was the centerpiece of the exodus wilderness wandering experience. In the Psalter, the book of Psalms, then a celebration of the Torah, Psalms 111, 112, and 119, frames words of praise to God, Psalms 113 through 118, for deliverance and protection in the defining moment of ancient Israel's history. Psalm 111 we'll look at today. Psalm 112 we'll look at next week. Psalm 111 is an alphabetic poem, as is Psalm 112 otherwise known as an acrostic. In English, we have 10 verses. In Hebrew, there are 22 poetic lines. The first word of each line begins with a different Hebrew letter of the alphabet, going in order from the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, to the last letter, the 22nd letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. 
there are a handful of this kind of alphabetic poem in the Old Testament. Some of them are structured differently or are incomplete. But Psalms 111 and Psalm 112 are both complete, straightforward, alphabetic poems. The first line serves as a heading or title for the psalm and stands outside the alphabetic structure. To give you a feel for what this would be like, I've provided in your sermon notes my own attempt to render in the Hebrew, to render the Hebrew of Psalm 111 into English following the English alphabet. There are 26 letters in the English alphabet, as you know. So we'll only go A through V instead of A through Z. My translation is a bit of a paraphrase in some places, but I've tried to capture the meaning of each verse while following the alphabetic pattern. Why don't you follow along while I read it? Praise Yah. We'll talk about that form, Yah, in just a minute. Praise Yah. An expression of gratitude I will offer to Yahweh wholeheartedly before the gathered congregation of the upright. Colossal are the works of Yahweh, diligently studied by all who delight in them. Elegant and majestic is his work. Forever his righteousness is standing. Glorious works of deliverance he has caused to be remembered. He, Yahweh, is gracious and compassionate. Itching for food, those who fear him receive meals from him. Justly he will remember forever his covenant. Kindly he discloses the power of his works to his people, letting them have the inheritance of the nations. Made by his hands, all his works are characterized by truth and justice. Never failing are all his precepts, only enduring forever and ever, practiced with truth and uprightness. Quite completely, he accomplished the redemption of his people, requiring permanent obedience to his covenant. Sanctify his awesome name. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. Understanding is good for all who practice his precepts. Valid is his praise, standing forever. As you can probably guess, the lines beginning with I, Q, and V uh, were particularly tricky. So why would anyone do this? First, it is a poetic way of communicating an idea of completeness, as if to say that you're covering a topic from A to Z. Now, of course, when we're talking about praising God, there's no limit to how much praise he deserves. No human alphabet could ever cover it all. Nevertheless, a complete summary is what is in view. Second, as I experienced when I worked this out in English, it requires you to get creative with your language in expressing something. When you have to choose a word that begins with I, the letter I, to begin a line of thought, you have to think long and hard or use a good thesaurus and in choosing that unique word, a word you wouldn't have chosen naturally, you actually can express something unique and differently. God delights in the variety of our praises. Finally, at least for ancient Hebrews, using this alphabetic structure aided in memorizing. It works by the sequence of sounds lining up with this familiar pattern of the alphabet. That effect is hard to experience by us today because we live in a society that is not as oral. We depend more in our learning on reading text with our eyes, whereas ancient folks depended more in their learning on hearing with their ears. So 
Psalm 111 is an alphabetical poem in Hebrew, and so is Psalm 112, which we'll explore next week. These two psalms were composed as mirrors of each other. Psalm 111 focuses on praising God for his great works. Psalm 112 focuses on the expected response of God's people to God's great works. And Psalm 112 will use many of the same phrases and ideas from Psalm 111 to show how God's people should mirror God. Thus, the people of Israel were supposed to live as a mirror reflection of their God. That kind of sounds like how God created Adam and Eve as his image and his reflection. Humanity was supposed to mirror God in this world, rule on his behalf, put his character on display, but they rebelled. The mirror was broken. The reflection, the image has been damaged, defaced. How did Israel as a nation fare in their call to pick up the mantle of image bearers of the creator? Not well. How then will God have his image restored, repaired, reflected accurately in this world, if not through Israel? Next week we'll see. But first, in Psalm 111 this morning, we're going to look at God himself. We're going to praise him for who he has revealed himself to be, mainly in his great works. Work is the major theme of this psalm. Seven times a word for work is used, though our English Bibles have to translate the terms differently sometimes so that we miss the connection. Although I'm satisfied with my own personal translation of Psalm 111, as we walk through the passage together, we'll explore the ESV as our starting point. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 3, praising the eternally righteous king for his great work. Psalm 111, 1 to 3 from the ESV. Praise Yah. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of Yahweh, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. So we begin with a heading that's outside of the alphabetic structure. Praise Yah. Now we've talked about the name Yahweh. Uh, If you missed last week's sermon, go back and listen to that and you'll hear uh, a review of of why we refer to God's name as Yahweh. When we typically, when we see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our Bible, the English capitalization there, the font, is actually an indicator to us that underneath is the divine name. But about 27 times, mostly in the Psalms, but a few times in some of the prophets, The Hebrew underneath, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, like what we have here, is not the full name Yahweh, but an abbreviation. Yah, the first two consonants of the four-letter consonantal name of God. And so you could just say Yah. Now, what you might recognize, and if you're reading uh, certain Bible translations, actually very few, uh, you'll read the word Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, that's, that's actually just the Hebrew brought over into English. Hallelu is a word by itself in Hebrew, and Yah is this abbreviated name of God. And so Hallelu in Hebrew is an imperative verb. It's a command to a bunch of people. It's a command to God's people as a whole, to the congregation, to praise. This is the normal Hebrew word for praise. 
And so to translate it out, you could say, praise Yah. When we tend to use the word hallelujah in English, we don't use it the same way that it's used in the Bible. We use it as kind of an interjection or an exclamation. We might say hallelujah in the same way that we might say amen, or we might say praise God. And what we mean is uh, I'm praising God. Uh, we might also, if we're thinking, if we think it through, we might also be inviting other people to praise God with us, and that's good. But technically, the Hebrew itself is a command to the congregation to praise Yah. And that's what our translation reflects here with praise the Lord with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So praise Yah. So that's the heading of this. This is a praise psalm. And then he goes into the alphabetic poetic structure here and he begins by his own commitment, the psalmist's own commitment to giving thanks, thanking Yahweh wholeheartedly. He's not thanking Yahweh partially or in a limited sense. He is thanking God with his whole being. He recognizes the great things that God has done for him, and he wants to give thanks with all that he is. And so he says, I will, I am committed. And he's standing up as kind of a worship leader. He's giving an example, standing in as an example for before God's people. I will, I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. And the implication is, so should you. So should you. The great works for which this psalmist is praising Yah, or Yahweh, the Lord, are the great works of salvation that has impacted all of God's people. So everything that he says is not just some personal reflection on praising God for the, for the things that God has done in his own personal private life, but the great things that God has done in saving God's people as a corporate body. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the psalm. That's what he's reflecting on, but he's going to do it publicly. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation, as the people of God are gathered together in worship, he is going to testify. He is going to speak well of God. He's going to praise God publicly so that everybody can hear and everybody can participate. Everybody can join in in praising God because what he's praising God for, what he's giving thanks to God for is relevant for all of these other people. Verse two, great are the works of Yahweh. Great are the works. What are these great works? Well, actually, that that phrase, great work, is used a couple of times in earlier scripture. And if we take our lead from there, we already see that the psalmist is thinking primarily about the Exodus. Uh, great works. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 7. Moses is reflecting back on what God had done as he leads the people of Israel up to the, the point of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over as he's going to die and not cross over himself, Moses, but the people are going to cross over and enter the land of Canaan. And Moses looks back in Deuteronomy eleven seven, and he says, for your eyes, talking to God's people, for your eyes have seen all the great work of Yahweh that he did. And he's talking about the Exodus and God's preservation of the people throughout the wilderness wanderings. We could look again also at Judges chapter 2. Perhaps you remember, since we went through Judges fairly recently, Judges 2 was a long time ago, though. Judges 2, 7, the narrator says, And the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel. And so this, this phrase, great work, has specific reference to what we read about in the books of Exodus Numbers, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, ultimately, and even into Joshua uh, as well. 
But then he says these works are studied by all who delight in them. Studied by all who delight in them. See, it's not enough to simply praise God or to give him thanks for the great works that he's done. Here, the reality is the people of God don't just look back and say, those are great works. They actually delight in those works. And for the psalmist, who's probably writing generations later, or at least writing for the people of God generations later, he is reminding them of this historical moment that happened before any of them were born, but that impacted them and benefited them by shaping their history. And he encourages them to study, to delight in these great works. And if you delight in them, if you look back and you recognize God did something amazing for me, even before I was born, that has shaped my life so radically, and you you feel a delight in that. You, you delight in the fact of God's works. And how would you ever do that? Well, you've got to study them. And so this delighting in them and studying them is something that's kind of a, uh, a circle. You delight in them and therefore you study them. And as you study them and you grow in your understanding of just what God did for you, your delight should increase in them. And so this goes back to what we read about in Psalm 1. The, the man who is to be congratulated is the man who delights in the Torah of Yahweh, in the instruction of Yahweh, and meditates on it day and night. And so the person who delights in the instruction of, of Yahweh, in the instruction of the Lord, is going to read about, read about the great works that God has done for us. That's the point. We read about them. We study them. And as we go deeper in our understanding of what God has done for us, our delight should increase incrementally. Sometimes it's gradually, but the delight should increase as we study and as we go deeper. We don't study simply for head knowledge. We study so that our delight in what God has done may be fueled. And that's what the psalmist is commending here, that we would study the great works of Yahweh. And how do we do that? We go to the instruction of Yahweh, to the Torah, to the scriptures, to the Bible. That's where we learn about what God has done for us. And then he describes in verse 3 great God's great work as full of splendor and majesty. These two terms are royal terms. They're often used as a pair to describe the royalty of a, a human king, but also of God and his kingship. And so what we see is that God's great work that we look back on of salvation for the Old Testament believers, for the Jews, it was that event of the Exodus. That was a royal work. That was God as king over the people going into enemy territory, Egypt, and setting his people free. They were captives of a foreign power, and God invaded Egypt with those plagues, those mighty works, those wonders that we're going to read about in a little bit. And he went in and he invaded and he conquered not only the Pharaoh over Egypt, but also the gods that they had worshipped in Egypt. And so Yahweh's act of redemption is a great kingly act. And so his work is full of royal splendor and majesty. His righteousness endures forever. It stands forever. What he did in the Exodus, what he did to save his people from slavery was right. It was right for him to invade a foreign land. It was right for him to remove those slaves from Egypt to take them out from under their burdens. Why was it right? Well, because it lined up with his own character. 
it wasn't right because the people of Israel were, were enslaved unfairly or unjustly. It wasn't right because the people of Israel didn't deserve to be treated that way. In fact, they did deserve to be treated that way and much worse. Because even though God had called them out, even though God had chosen their family, they too worshipped idols while they lived in Egypt. And so for God to rescue them was totally a part of his own grace, that he would go into Egypt and set them free, that he would send Moses in as his agent to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt was totally a gift by his grace. But it represents his righteousness because it lines up with his character as a savior, a deliverer. He is the kind of God who saves his people. That's what he does. And so his righteousness, his moral righteousness is on display in his great work. Now, as he goes on, as the psalmist goes on into verses four through six, he gets specific. Verses one to three were more generic and general, but verses four through six are very specifically focused on the Exodus story, remembering the works of Yahweh in the Exodus. Verses four through six. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. Yahweh is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. So in verse 4, we get a specific reference to the plagues of Egypt. You might miss it there. You don't see the word plague. But he says he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. His wonders to be remembered. That specific Hebrew word is used repeatedly in the Old Testament to refer specifically to the plagues in Exodus. One example, Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, before he even does anything, when he's talking to Moses about what he's going to do, Exodus 3, 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders. That's this word here, wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you Go. So the wonders are the acts of judgment that God sent into Egypt, acts of judgment and punishment against the disobedience, the rebellion, the paganism of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And ultimately, the people of Israel who lived in Egypt deserve those same punishments. God made a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians in some of those plagues, not all of them, but in some of them by his grace, protecting them and making a distinction totally by his grace, not because they deserved it, but because he chose to make a distinction. And then on the 10th plague, the 10th wonder, the 10th judgment, where the firstborn sons of Egypt were to be slain, even the firstborn sons of the Israelites living in Egypt were to be slain or to be executed as an expression of God's wrath against the sinful people living in Egypt. Not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites too. But God instructed them to undergo the Passover, to select a lamb, a lamb, a spotless lamb for each household so that that lamb could be slain. Its blood could be spilt. It could be spread over the doorposts of each home of the Israelites. And every home who did that 
who obeyed that command by trusting that Yahweh would hold to his word for their home, for their family. The angel who was bringing forth the execution and the destruction of the firstborn sons in Egypt passed over those houses that had gone through with the Passover sacrifice so that lamb could stand in the place, could die in the place of the firstborn son of each of those homes because each of those families deserved to have their firstborn sons executed under the wrath of God because of their sin and their idolatry while they were in Egypt. But instead, Yahweh revealed himself to be gracious and merciful. Verse, the rest of verse 4. Yahweh is gracious and merciful. That little pair of phrases is a key phrase in Exodus. Exodus 34, 6 is the place where uh, uh, it's after the golden calf situation. So again, a situation of blatant idolatry after God had brought them out of Egypt and to Mount Sinai, they built this golden calf. They're bowing down to it and worshiping it as though it were Yahweh, as though this golden calf had set them free from Egypt. And while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God about the possibility of forgiving these rebellious people, Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. Moses asks to see God's glory, to see Yahweh's glory, and Yahweh hides Moses so that he won't see the full measure of God's glory, because then he would have to die. And he passes by, and he reveals himself to Moses. The afterglow of his movement past Moses and becomes visible to Moses, but the way he reveals himself to Moses is he reveals his name to Moses. He already told him his name was Yahweh back in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. He already told him what his name means. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, but now he explains fully, more fully, what his name signifies, what his character is. And he reveals himself as Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and all the rest. And he, here, the psalmist remembers that name, and he uses gracious and merciful. He flips them around for the sake of the alphabetic structure that he's following here. Yahweh is gracious and merciful. Yahweh has revealed himself to be gracious and merciful because the Israelites in Egypt and at Mount Sinai deserved to die. They were idolaters, and yet Yahweh chose to treat them with grace and mercy. He gave them grace. He made them his people, even though they deserved to be destroyed along with the Egyptians. And he exercised mercy by not destroying them to the full extent that they deserved. So he is gracious and merciful. Verse 5 then moves forward in the Exodus story and talks about how they survived in the wilderness. God fed them. He provides, verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. Food in verse 5. This was the manna and the quail that God provided throughout the wilderness wanderings, even as the people of Israel remained rebellious and stubborn and hard-headed and ungrateful and whining and complaining, right? They complained about the manna. They complained about not having meat. And God gave them manna and quail anyway to provide food for them in the desert as an expression of his grace. Then in verse 5, he goes on to say, he remembers his covenant forever. Now, this is an interesting piece. All that God did in the Exodus was a remembrance of his covenant forever. Now, it's important to stop here for just a moment because we actually get this phrase about remembering his covenant 
about his covenant being forever twice in this psalm. And it's an important idea in the Old Testament of a forever or an eternal covenant. We need to think about what covenant he's referring to. You know that the Old Testament, there are, in the Old Testament, there are many covenants that God makes with people. And so what is the covenant that he's thinking of here? Many folks, when they read this, because of the Exodus context, they think, well, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, right? That's the covenant that is established in the midst of the Exodus. But I don't think that's what the psalmist is actually remembering here. He's recognizing that the Exodus events, God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt was a fulfillment or a step on the way to fulfillment of the of a previous covenant. And so we see things like this in Exodus chapter 2 verse 24. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So that, as we read the book of Exodus and we read the story, this is before Moses has been chosen. This is before Moses goes back to the people. Uh, and so Exodus 2.24, this is just God. He's heard the, the hardship, the complaining and the groaning and the suffering of the family of Abraham in Egypt. And so as he gets ready to act, to set them free from their slavery, to bring them out of Egypt, he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's going back to the Abrahamic covenant here. Fast forward a little bit in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, as Yahweh and Moses are talking about what's actually going to happen here as Yahweh is sending Moses back to Pharaoh. This is just after at the end of uh, uh, chapter 5, where Moses and Aaron had already gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused to release the people of Israel, then took away their straw for making bricks. And the people of Israel were furious with their redeemer, Moses and Aaron, And so Moses comes to question God about this. And God's answer, Exodus chapter 6, verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So again, this is way before the Mosaic covenant. So this is going back to the Abrahamic covenant. So that's what he's reflecting on here. But the point is that God is faithful to his covenant promises. He's faithful in his covenant relationships. That's what the psalmist is thanking God for here, praising God for, that he is faithful to remember his covenant promises, particularly those made to Abraham and his offspring. Verse 6 then, he has shown or revealed or disclosed to his people the power of his works. His, the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Now, of course, this inheritance idea in verse 6 uh, refers to them taking the land of Canaan. Joshua 23, verse 4. Joshua is speaking to the people about the allotment of land. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The nations of Canaan, where God took them, God owned them, he's got a right to them to give them to whoever he wants to, and he chooses to give them as an inheritance to his own people, the people of Israel, the family of Abraham. And so that's what going into the land and the conquest under Joshua is all about, God giving them the inheritance of these particular nations. Acts 13, verse 19, the apostle Paul reflects on this idea, and he says the same kind of thing. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, 
we need to think of this in this verse, as we think about the Psalms more broadly as prophetic in some fashion of Jesus and of the future. Um, this is not just about history. And it's at this point in verse six that we actually have the midpoint of this psalm. Many psalms have a structure that shows that there's a center point that has some a certain kind of weight to it. And verse six seems to be that. And so we could call, we could view verse six as the prophetic pivot, the prophetic pivot in this particular psalm. The language of the inheritance of the nations doesn't just have a historical reference to the people of Israel taking the land of Canaan. Instead, it has a future reference as well. So historically, this points back to giving the nations of Canaan to Israel as an inheritance. But prophetically, this points forward to the inheritance of all nations. Look at the way it's worded again, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. It doesn't say the nations of Canaan specifically, but it says the nations generically. And so this could point forward to the inheritance of all nations. Who is that promise for? Who is to receive all nations as an inheritance? Well, there, if we just stay in the book of Psalms, there are two mentioned. Psalm 82, 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So God, God has the nations as an inheritance for himself. But, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 2, verse 8, Yahweh is speaking to the descendant of David, the Davidic king who would come, the Messiah. And Yahweh says to him, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That word heritage is the same Hebrew word, inheritance. And so, the inheritance of all nations belongs rightly to God. He owns all the nations. He's got the right to do what he wants with every single nation on the planet, including the United States of America. He distributes the nations. He divides them. He sets up rulers over them as he sees fit. And ultimately, he has promised all nations as an inheritance for his son. And so we'll, we'll look at more of that later on. But that's the prophetic pivot, the midpoint of this psalm. So let's press on to verses 7 through 10, to the end of the psalm, where we read about working the word of God. So he's been talking about redemption. He's been talking about the great works of God. And now he's going to highlight the work of God in the word of God. Verses 7 to 10. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So verses 7 and 8, first we see a reference to being saved to serve. Saved to serve. Boy, that's a good New Testament idea, isn't it? To be, be God's people were redeemed 
to serve. Go back and read the book of Exodus and you'll find that God told the people, I am bringing you out of Egypt. Moses actually told Pharaoh to let the people of God go so that they might serve him at the mountain, at the place of his choosing, at Mount Sinai. And that word for serve is a word for worship. It's a word for worship. And so he's rescuing them from Egypt. He's setting them free from slavery so that they may serve him. They can't serve him as slaves in Egypt. They can't serve him properly in that place before he's rescued them, before he's redeemed them. And so he redeems them for the purpose of them doing uh, his service, service to him. And so verses 7 and 8 highlight that reality. Uh, they've, he has the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. His precepts are his uh, teachings in, his, in the scriptures, in the Mosaic law, in his word. They are the principles by which human beings should live. They've been revealed in writing to us. That's what the precepts are all about. And they are established forever and ever. This word that God has given us, these precepts that God has given us, precepts to live by, are precepts that are trustworthy because they're God's very word. They're his instruction for humanity. They're what, how he wants human beings to live. They are established forever and ever to be performed. That's one of the work words that we don't see very clearly in English, to be worked, to be done, to be obeyed with faithfulness and uprightness. So if his word is faithful, if his works are faithful, his people should mirror that and be faithful as well. We are saved to serve. And of course, that's a New Testament reality as well, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We often focus on verse 8. It's it's by grace you've been saved and not by works, not by your doing. But then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. That's a reference to salvation created in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about the old creation. He's not talking about the creation that we are just, we're human beings made in the image of God, descended from Adam and Eve. He's not talking about that creation. He's talking about the new creation. We've been created anew in Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been saved to serve. God rescued us from slavery to sin and death so that we might serve him, so that we might obey him. He saved us so that we might serve him. That is the goal, the point of our salvation. He didn't save us to sit. He didn't save us to be idle. He didn't save us just so we could be free to do whatever we want. He saved us so that we could now be free to obey him for the first time in our lives. Verse 9 adds an element that is interesting and a little bit challenging to think through. We are redeemed, we have been redeemed to fulfill his covenant, verse 9. So he goes back to this covenant language in verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. Redemption here is the idea of being purchased out of slavery. A purchase price is made, a payment's made, so that a slave may go free. And so in the case of the Israelites, the purchase price is essentially the judgment on the nation of Israel. Judgment is meted on the the nation of Egypt. Judgment is meted out against the Egyptians and a substitute is offered to the Israelites so that they might survive the judgment and they might come out of it alive and free, having had a substitute stand in for them. And so they have been redeemed by that purchase price. There's been a death. 
There's been the judgment of the Egyptians and there's been the death of the lamb in the place of the Israelite families so that the Israelites may come out to be God's firstborn son, essentially. That's what he calls them in Exodus chapter 4. They are his firstborn son. And so it is in a metaphorical kind of fashion. And so it is that he sent redemption to his people. He redeemed them. He personifies this almost. It's like he sent redemption as a, as a messenger. So he sent a messenger to accomplish redemption. Might be some prophetic foreshadowing there where he sends an agent to make the purchase price to redeem his people from slavery. That would be a picture of him sending Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it is that he redeems his people, but he redeems his people so that they might fulfill his covenant, his forever covenant. So that phrase, his covenant forever, we looked at in verse 5, and we said it refers to the Abrahamic covenant. Here, there's a little wrinkle with that idea. He has commanded his covenant forever. What does that mean? Well, if we want to think through this a little bit and, and, and recognize the reality uh, of commanding the covenant, we tend to think about the, the Mosaic covenant, right? The Mosaic covenant is a covenant, a, a command covenant. It's full of commands, right? References to God commanding his covenant, we would expect to refer to the Mosaic covenant. But Psalm 105 gives us reason to think differently here. It uses that same verbiage to refer specifically to the Abrahamic covenant. So let me read those verses for you here. Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11. He remembers his covenant forever. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. So in Psalm 105, this same verbiage is used, both, uh, both remembering his covenant and also commanding his covenant. And there, it's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is not referred to directly in Scripture, as far as I can tell, as a forever covenant or an eternal covenant. Certain pieces of it are referred to with that language. Circumcision, interestingly, is referred to as an eternal covenant in Genesis 17. Uh, and some of the priestly aspects are referred to as an eternal covenant. But the whole arrangement, the Mosaic arrangement, the Mosaic covenant is not referred to as an eternal or forever covenant in the Scriptures, as far as I know. Paul and the author of Hebrews both make much of this reality, highlighting the temporary nature of the Mosaic Covenant. However, it's hard for us to make sense of the Abrahamic Covenant as something God commanded because we usually hear about the Abrahamic Covenant as though it were a so-called unconditional covenant. That's a common understanding, but I believe it is fundamentally mistaken. In the ancient world, there is no such thing as an unconditional covenant. By definition, a covenant has conditions. A covenant is a relationship between at least two parties that is based on, agreed upon, obligations, conditions. It's really that simple. So let's revisit the Abrahamic covenant briefly. As it was originally stated to Abraham. Some of you may recall some of this from our Roman study in ABF. 
Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now, in verses 1 to 3, you won't read the word covenant, but everyone recognizes that this is the initial establishment of the covenant relationship between God and Abram, Abraham. And the terms of the covenant are stated very clearly. And these terms will be elaborated in later occasions when God appears to Abraham again. Listen for the commands. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you probably only recognize one command in what we read there. And even if that were the only command in Hebrew, that would be enough to establish this as a conditional covenant. The fulfillment of the promises is in some way contingent on Abram's obedience to the commands. Now in Hebrew, there is one more command. The structure of these three verses goes like this. There's a command, and then there are three promises. And then there's a second command, and then there are three more promises. Go from your country is the first command. The three promises then follow in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. That last phrase of verse 2 looks like a further promise or a result of the previous promises. However, in Hebrew, it is an imperative verb. Very clearly. It's plainly a command. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. Abram is commanded to leave his home, and Abram is commanded to be a blessing. He is commanded to be a source of blessing for the people he comes into contact with. Then verse 3 includes three more promises. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So if you see those second three promises are built on that command, be a blessing. It has to do with Abram's relationship and connection to other people. The first three commands are just based, focused on Abram and his family line, right? And so the, the command is connected to those three promises. And then the second command is connected to those three promises. They're built together. Now, why did I take the time to show you that? If the psalmist is referring to the Abrahamic covenant, then the reference to commanding the covenant in Psalm 111 verse 9 would refer to God's people needing to fulfill the obligations of the Abrahamic covenant. What we need to see here in the larger picture of the history of redemption is that the covenants are all connected. The Mosaic covenant was set up as a means to fulfill the human obligations of the Abrahamic covenant. The exodus, the establishment of the Mosaic law, and the conquest of the land were all aspects of God keeping his promises to Abraham. He was remembering his covenant with Abraham and Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring, Abraham's descendants. Abraham failed in his obligations to God. He disobeyed one of the commandments given to him. He was not a blessing to the people he came into contact with. Read the rest of Genesis 12. Did his actions bring blessing to the Egyptian Pharaoh? But God's plans were much bigger 
than just Abraham and just Abraham's immediate family. He had promised to form a nation from Abraham's descendants. A nation needed a covenant with fresh terms to fulfill the obligations of the Abrahamic covenant. How could Israel, as a nation, bring blessing to other nations? How would Israel serve as a kingdom of priests, as the Lord put it in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai? The Mosaic Covenant spelled out those terms. The Mosaic Covenant was, therefore, a means to an end, a means to fulfilling the Abrahamic Covenant. But, of course, Israel failed also. But God must have a faithful covenant partner. He must. He has not abandoned his covenant. He has not abandoned his promises. A descendant of Abraham, an Israelite man, has obeyed. He has fulfilled the human obligations of the covenant, of all the covenants. His name is Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Verse 10. Turn to verse 10 with me. Psalm 111, verse 10. We look at wisdom embodied in obedience and praise. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of Yahweh? It is not terror that drives us away from Yahweh. It is a recognition and embrace, recognition and embrace of who God has revealed himself to be as holy and awesome. In Hebrew, the word translated fear and the word translated awesome are intimately related. The psalmist is affirming what we read elsewhere in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. You can't be wise in this world if you don't fear the Lord. If you don't recognize and embrace who God has revealed himself to be as holy and awesome, you can't be truly wise in this world. That recognition and that embrace is the beginning, the first step, the fundamental principle of wisdom itself. However skilled a person might be in making decisions or living in this world, if they don't know God as he really is, they cannot be truly wise. But what does this look like on the ground? The second line of verse 10 says, all those who practice it have a good understanding. The it there in the ESV and in most English Bibles actually reflects a Hebrew plural. It should be them. And the them that we should be practicing are the precepts mentioned back in verse 7. Fearing the Lord includes taking his word seriously, treating what he says with the utmost respect, and seeking to believe and obey whatever we find there. A French theologian, I quoted a French Catholic theologian last, last week, today, this is a very much a Protestant, conservative, evangelical French theologian who used to teach at Wheaton well before my time there by the name of Henri Blochet summarized the point memorably. He said, his revelation reverently received makes one truly wise. God's revelation reverently received makes one truly wise. I like that a lot. True wisdom is embodied by those who seek to obey God's word. It's welcoming God's word, the way we talked about in the book of James. 
But the final line of the psalm takes us back to the opening call to praise God. His praise endures forever. Back in verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. And because his righteous character endures forever, so also his praise endures forever. That means that we will never cease to praise God forever because of his righteousness. If that's what we're going to be doing forever, because of his righteousness, praising the righteous God who deserves all praise for all eternity, we might as well start practicing now. Praising God is all about celebrating who he is, remembering what he's done and talking about it and singing about it. Praise is fundamentally verbal in the Bible. Those who fear Yahweh rightly take his words seriously and see clearly who he is and receive the revelation of what he's done for us in Christ. How can we not praise him both now and forever? Well, as, I, as we close our time together, I want to talk about what it means for us as Christians to study God's works study God's works. The Jews study the works of God in redeeming them from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into the land of Canaan to live as his people. We have a much more excellent redemption to study and celebrate. They look back to Passover. We look back to the fulfillment of Passover in Jesus's death. We remember his fulfillment of Passover, his death as the Passover lamb, substituting his precious blood for our sinful blood. He taught us to remember it in a celebratory snack, a symbolic token meal, the Lord's Supper. The Jews look back to how the Lord fed them in the wilderness with manna and quail. We look back to how Jesus has fed us with his own flesh and with his own blood. We eat a cracker. We drink a reddish liquid to symbolize receiving Jesus into our very selves by faith. He nourishes us by his gospel, by giving us himself through his great acts of redemption. The Jews look back to their inheritance of the land when he dispossessed the Canaanite nations to give the nation of Israel a territory to possess as a kind of down payment on the full inheritance, the promise of a new world, a new creation. We look back to Jesus, who lived faithfully in our place, died sacrificially in our place, and rose from the dead to make all those who would trust him genuine heirs to all that God had promised. We look back to see our identity as heirs being secured. We were written into the will, so to speak. And as heirs now, we look forward to receiving the inheritance, eternal life, the kingdom of God, salvation, the new creation. As we wait to receive the full experience of our inheritance, we must embody the mentality of the psalmist. We should be about the business of studying God's works, praising God for them, and seeking to obey God's word. Some of you may be familiar with the children's Bible program called Awana. Their theme verse is 2 Timothy 2.15. In the KJV, it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word translated study is actually a term that's much broader. It refers to diligent, hard work. Thus, the ESV translates it, 
do your best. Study is too narrow, even in a verse that is focusing on the word of truth. Rightly dividing or rightly handling the word refers to more than just study. Instead, it refers to how one views and treats the word, and also how one teaches the word to others. If we're going to rightly handle the word, we've got to rightly handle this verse. Paul is commending hard work that includes diligent study, but let's make sure we don't get it backwards here. Paul doesn't say, work hard in order to be approved. No, he says, work hard as one who has already been approved. How can we tell if a person's been approved? They're a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. Why don't they need to be ashamed? Because they rightly handle the word. And the phrase word of truth refers specifically to the gospel message. It's appropriate to extend the application to all of Scripture, but Paul is especially focusing on the way we think about, the way we talk about, and the way we study the gospel, the announcement of the great works of God to redeem us. So how do we study God's works? We study the Bible. We will always be able to go deeper in our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. Always. And deeper understanding should lead to more exuberant worship. When we see more clearly what God has done for us, or when we learn something new about what God has done for us, we should be moved to praise him, to talk about what he's done, to sing about what he's done. And when we see more clearly what God has done for us, we should find greater motivation to seek to obey whatever he tells us to do in his word. Let's pray and ask God to work out that process in us. Oh, Father, you have accomplished a great redemption for your people. We thank you for the work that you have done. We thank you that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The work is done. We don't work for your approval. We don't work for our salvation. We don't work so that you will love us. We work because you have approved us in Christ. We work because you have saved us. We work because you have accomplished redemption for us. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you for loving us, though we don't deserve it. Your love is counter-conditional. You love us even though we don't deserve it. You love us even though we deserve your hatred. Thank you for loving your enemies, such as we all were. And you have made us your friends by your great work. Thank you for rescuing us from our slavery. Would you enable us to live out our freedom? The freedom that you've granted to us is so much greater than any kind of religious liberty that a nation can grant us. The freedom that you have given us is freedom from sin and Satan. The freedom that you've given us is the freedom not to sin. Oh, Father, would we live that freedom out by your Spirit? Give us grace to experience our freedom in its full measure in this life, no matter what obstacles we face, no matter what opposition we face in this life, in the culture around us, in the government above us. Help us, O Lord, to cling to the freedom that you've granted in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake, amen.